thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And I think we're going to have a doozy of a podcast today because there's some things going on around in our country in terms of trying to combat some evils in which the Christian community is going to the devil's tool shed to find the tools it needs to fight against what they believe is evil. And this is a podcast I want to encourage you to think about sending to your friends. They must absolutely understand what is going on and be careful of the Pied Pipers who will lead them astray and in the effort and in the intention to do good actually undermine everything Christianity believes to be true about God and the nature of the cosmos. This is dead serious stuff and I hope that I can explain it to you clearly and that you will feel compelled to share it with others. Now let me give you some context. There are multiple bills going around in the country and being promoted to deal with hospitals and doctors that are providing quote gender-affirming care to minors and the physicians in the hospitals are naturally and as they should be getting parental consent okay and most of the Christian community and even a lot of the non-Christian community thinks ah you know you should not alter change thwart the development of healthy reproductive organs in a child's body when they're a minor and parents ought not be allowed to consent to that so they want to go off to war in support of bills that would try to stop that kind of thing. Now we're going to look at today how you can go about a good thing in a terribly wrong, anti-biblical, anti-God way and maybe not even realize it. And friends, we've got to start realizing and thinking about what we're doing and what our worldview says about how we're going about things. God doesn't just care about the end, He cares about the means right? It's not enough to say, I did a good thing. I have to do it with the right heart, with the right attitude towards God, the right understanding towards God, which is why the scripture says there's nobody that does anything that's really good because our motives are always mixed. They never come from a pure heart. That's why we need Jesus and why we need to be joined to Jesus so that we can have a life attributed to us, accounted to us, that that allows us to be justified. And we've got to start thinking through how what we believe relates to legislation, and particularly this kind of legislation. As a friend of mine said the other day on a conference call that I was part of with a, with a large national Christian evangelical worldview organization, when they were saying, gee, I don't know how all this stuff y'all are talking about, about the law and the Constitution and the Obergefell versus Hodges same-sex marriage decision, I, I don't know how that fits in our mission statement because we're not a legal organization, we're sort of a Christian worldview organization. And my friend responded to him, does trying to save Western civilization fit within your worldview mission? Because that's what we're talking about. So friend, that's what I'm going to be talking about over the next 
few minutes. This is deadly serious stuff with profound implications. And if we think we can pass bills in ways that give no honor and glory or recognition to God, and he will bless that over the long run, then we are not thinking Christianly to begin with. That's works without faith. That's mere moralism. And it does us no good. It never has done any good. That's replete throughout the scriptures. And yet, that's really what we're trying to do in so many instances in these legislative battles to fight transgenderism. Now, I, I want to begin with some thoughts that come from my friend Jeff Schaefer from other podcasts that he's done, one with me and with my friends at the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, as well as some clips that, uh, of speeches that he's given at the New St. Andrews College. And so I want to begin with setting the broad framework of what we are dealing with following the Supreme Court's Obergefell decision in 2015 that is now coming home to roost in transgender ideology and the question of what constitutes one a parent and what rights do parents have. This is the building block that I'm going to be talking about today that absolutely must be restored and without which we are building in the air on sand. Listen to what Jeff says about the court's judicial philosophy in Obergefell. What we're ultimately considering here is human meaning, the, yeah. the very predicates of civilization itself. You know, the, the profound matters at stake here include whether there's even significance in being male or female. The reality of marriage and family is institutions that, of defining significance for personal identity and the boundaries of that whether there are divinely instituted and authoritative realities in this world at all that would serve to restrain the state's claims to omnipotence and defining power over all persons and things. These are no small matters, but they're very much bound up within the kinds of decisions that the court has been uh, producing over the last number of decades. Now, what Jeff just said was very important for you to understand if you care about being able to raise your children according to your values and your precepts. If you are a home education family, you should care about what he just said. If you don't understand what he just said, listen to it multiple times if you have to. In the Supreme Court's jurisdiction, there is no reason to believe that there is any truth about the parent-child relationship upon which any parent could assert any fundamental right relative to their child that the government cannot breach. Did you hear that? Get that in your head. Oh, my friends, I don't want to sound too dramatic, but this has not registered in the minds of many Christians, most Christians, most pastors, most Christian organizations. Oh, my friends, it's grievous to me that we've thought so little about the implications of what the court has said and written into our constitutional jurisprudence that there is no given meaning to anything about being human, and that would have to include human relationships such as the parent and the child. You are defenseless. You don't own your children anymore. Not under this worldview that's been written into our constitutional jurisprudence. 
Now, I want to get to how we came to this place. And I'm going to play another clip for you from Jeff Schaefer. And I think that this may have been a clip from the Fight Love Feast episode that featured Jeff. We've not learned the lessons of the 20th century. We mm. have kind of a, um, we're, we have maintained an abhorrence with the terroristic excesses of the totalitarian regime, but we have not only imbibed, but built upon the idea that essentially man is nothing at all except what we can do with him. There we go. We are nothing at all except what we can do with ourselves, which is transgender ideology. And when that statement is true, that is the totalitarian regime that Jeff is describing. There are no limits to what man can do as long as science can provide a justification for it. And we've not learned that lesson yet. Because when I review the bills trying to stop transgender-affirming care among minors, they are uniformly all based on science. As my friend Adam McLeod said to me the other day, science cannot tell us what human nature is. How did we get to the point where Christians are looking more to science than they are to the Word of God to understand what it means to be human and to try to stop the excesses of a constitutional jurisprudence that is rooted in nothing other than the liberty to define and express one's own identity. That's the first sentence of the Obergefell decision. And it has not been thought through because we were too busy trying to do something else. I don't want to sound harsh, but my friends, it's been seven years since the Supreme Court made that statement that we are autonomous beings and we choose who and what we are, which means we have to choose what, who and what we are in terms of our relationships. And those are decisions that the state cannot interfere with. So when two people choose to be parents, even though they have no biological or organic connection to a child, and they think that their ideology about human nature, about human sexuality, about what it means to be male and female, is their choice for them to make for their minor child. So how are Christians going to say, we believe in parental rights, and then turn around and say, but you don't have a parental right to that, and rely only on science? They can't. It's foolishness. It's the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world has been evolutionary, and it's brought us to the place where having to address this and to turn to evolutionists to solve the problem is, is ludicrous. But yet that's what we do. In fact, this evolutionary biologist was brought to one meeting recently to help lend support to legislation stopping the mutilation of children. And, and what he eventually really said was, scientists need to stop talking about the fact that there are more than two sexes because it undermines science's credibility when it comes to issues like COVID and vaccine and public health matters. He's not concerned about truth. He's concerned about scientists maintaining their place of authority over the minds of the people in our nation that, and, and a science that denies the reality of anything beyond nature, metaphysics. Now I'm going to take a few moments to explain how we got here. And I talked about it in a previous episode, I don't remember when it was, when I brought up 
Nancy Piercy. And Nancy Piercy's written a book, and I'm going to take some statements from it and paraphrase a few statements from it called Total Truth. If you buy the book, these are the pages 302 through about 309. Now, what Nancy says, how we got to this place, that even Christians are running to science and putting in their bills all this scientific stuff that says this and this and this and this. And keep in mind, the other side has scientists who will say the opposite, right? So now we just get into a science spitting contest, which assures us of nothing then. But anyway, here's what she says. After the 19th century, so Jeff's talking about we didn't learn the lessons of the 20th century, and part of the lesson of the 20th century was after the 19th century, evangelicals thoroughly embraced the Baconian method of science and began to apply it to everything. Now, what is the Baconian method of science? It is the idea that we can rid our minds or wash them clean of all opinions and philosophical and theological presuppositions, and we can just collect the data and the facts and by sheer induction determine what the truth is. That view, my friend, sheds the whole concept of metaphysics. The idea that there is a meaning and a nature to anything. It is utterly nihilistic in terms of meaning. And I covered that in the previous series on restoring the foundations. But here's what we have to understand. Even scientific investigation proceeds under the guidance of control beliefs, which are simply premises, hypothesis that indicates which is ideas are worth pursuing, and then it provides a framework for interpreting the results. So the notion that we're even capable of freeing ourselves from human systems of thought is the product of a human system of thought that we took from Francis Bacon. Now, here's what Piercy goes on to say. Applied to other fields, Baconianism led to pernicious results. Its primary effect was to reinforce the two-story division of truth by promoting a kind of methodological naturalism in the lower story, here in the world, right, where we live and move and have our being, okay? And it promises that a kind of knowledge can be based on empirical facts unfiltered through any religious or philosophical grids. Now, to be honest, this is where Thomistic theology gets in trouble because it says that man is natural and supernatural, and at the fall, all that was lost was the supernatural aspect of man, but the natural aspects of man regarding his reason were left completely intact, and so we can then know truth by mere reason, that grace is something added on top of that which is natural. There is no fallen nature, per se, to be restored. Now, here's what that did. In the words of Piercy, it, quote, turned morality into a science. It assumed that cause and effect operates there, in our world of ethics, exactly as it did in Newtonian physics, that virtue leads to health and happiness while vice causes misery. Now, that may ring some alarm bells with you because of what I said last week, quoting from William Blackstone's 
commentaries on the laws of England. Remember Blackstone said that we had to have some incentive for man to search out the good. And so God made what is good for us as part of our human nature, that which promoted our happiness. And that which um, was bad for man, destroyed our happiness, we would, we would then learn. And he said, now, if, if that's all there was, he said, the talk would be easy and pleasant. And we would have no other thing to look to than reason itself, okay? But remember that Blackstone did not buy into this Baconian idea that ethics operates strictly by cause of cause and effect as well. Because, he said, one, we have a God. But two, he said, we now find in our experience that we are full of ignorance and error, and our thoughts are ruffled by passions and desires, and that has an effect on our reason. So in other words, it would be true that apart from our fallen nature, our hatred of God, and our desire to suppress the truth of God so that we can become our own masters, yes, we would find out by mere reason that this promotes good, being married and having fidelity in marriage. It promotes our good and our health and our happiness. And well, that, that promotes our unhappiness. But, but see, Blackstone was saying, yeah, but, but we live actually in a fallen world too. Don't leave that out. Now here's what Nancy says about this move to a Baconian science-based belief in, in ethics, in finding out the good, in knowing what is appropriate to our nature. Here's what she says that is so applicable to what I think is actually going on right now. It's got to stop because, to me, it smacks of being ashamed of the gospel. Here's what she says. Labeling ethics as a science was a good public relations move because it gave Christian clergy a credibility boost in an age when traditional and historical authorities were being cast aside. Claiming to be scientific put them in a position to prescribe a Christian moral order without looking too Christian, as one historian comments rightly. They did not appeal to the Bible or Revelation, but tried to base ethics on induction from experience. That's what we're putting into this bill to say, here's why the legislature needs to sub step in. Because uh, our experience is showing that sometimes this doesn't work out very well for children whose bodies are mutilated. And then she even mentions this, and this was sad to me. John Witherspoon, who's so respected as a founding father, even described his own moral philosophy as one that proceeded, quote, by reason as distinct from revelation. Now, friends, this is not to deny that we all have a moral sense, because we all do. The person who would deny God and any true ethic is the first one to complain, as C.S. Lewis says, when you break in line uh, to get on the bus. But Piercy continues, moral sense itself is not enough to ground a full-blown moral philosophy. Our sense of right and wrong is merely a datum of experience, which must be explained and accounted for by an overarching worldview. 
And if the Christian worldview is ruled out as an explanatory framework, then anti-Christian worldviews will rush in to fill the vacuum. And that's exactly what's happened. And we haven't learned the lessons of the 19th and 20th centuries, and we're still turning to science to try to provide meaning and human nature when it can do no such thing because meaning and a human nature are metaphysical propositions and realities that go beyond mere data, things that we can manipulate, as Jeff Schaefer said, and, and move around. Now, when an organization that's wanting to fight this brings in an evolutionary biologist to support legislation preventing this mutilation of bodies, we have to understand what's going on. And here again, Nancy Piercy speaks so clearly. When talking about Darwin and his mechanism that made it seem logical that God was not needed and we could cast out metaphysics and look strictly to science, she said, the tragedy is that evangelicals failed to meet the challenge. For the most part, they did not even recognize it. As good Baconians, evangelicals denied the role of philosophical assumptions in science, and thus they were powerless to critique and counter the new assumptions when they appeared on the intellectual horizon. See, when we turn only to science and we say this is what helps us know whether these transgender surgeries are good or bad, they're going to have other science. So the question is, how do we interpret the data? What worldview interprets the data? When you have accepted the notion that there is no worldview by which to interpret the data, then you have left it with only man being able to determine how to interpret the data and give it such meaning as they want. That's Derrida. That's nihilism. That's modernism. We are feeding into the very framework and worldview that produced the problem and turning to them for help rather than saying, you eat your own. We have a worldview that gives an answer and you're welcome to join us. We join them. And then Nancy Piercy quotes Charles Hodge as saying this, writing this, the distinctive element in Darwinism is not natural selection, but the denial of design or purpose and the denial or design in nature is virtually the denial of God. So friends, what we are doing in the way we support these kinds of bills, by not insisting that they be drafted to acknowledge there is a reality to the parent-child relationship that is not grounded in science, we are proceeding in a godless way. I hope I've made that clear. I hope that's intelligible. I pray that you, you see what's going on and that you weep with me, that the church has not seen that it must return again to the Word of God and in the realm of law to the concept of common law that says there is a law that exists independent of any decision by a judge or any act of a legislature that civil government must acknowledge. Now, in this case, 
what they're going to do is say, well, you're right, Fowler. The common law gives parental rights, and so I am protecting my child's constitutional rights, and I'm protecting and exercising my parental rights by allowing my child's reproductive organs to be mutilated so that his mind and his body can conform and he can be a united whole. But see, they misunderstand the common law. The common law would say that no, everybody has a fundamental right to their personal security, which is life, limb, body, health, reputation. So to the extent parents have rights, the rights must correspond to their duties. Rights don't exist in some abstract, just dream them up world. Rights and duties correspond to each other. And so the duty of a parent is to make sure his or her child is not maimed, does not lose their limbs and their body and their health. So the common law would say a parent would never have the right to consent to the maiming of their child. That's how we draw a distinction between the parental right to teach your children about God and heaven and hell and, and explain to them how evolution is built upon godless philosophies that don't work and can't answer fundamental questions is because that is within the scope of a duty that a parent owes the child and therefore they have the right to it. If we don't recover the notion that rights just don't float autonomously out there but correspond to duties, then yeah, we're going to have legislators saying, well, we can revoke parental rights because we've looked at the science and we've determined that this is harmful to your child. Do you see what's going on here with these bills? They're putting forward science and saying, science tells us this is harmful, so therefore parents cannot consent to this kind of treatment. Well, that may sound fine today, but think about this now, my friends, particularly you homeschool communities. So when the science tells us that children are maladjusted when they're taught about heaven and hell, and they're not taught the scientific Baconian method or whatever else it is, and the state then decides that's scientifically harmful to your child, can you now lose your parental rights? After all, you did agree to that very same principle and philosophy and worldview in trying to prevent the mutilation of children uh, in gender-affirming care. You see, if, if we embrace this kind of worldview here, it will continue, and rightfully so, and this sounds harsh, but you will deserve losing the right to the care and nurture of your children because you did not see what was coming and you did nothing. You thought you could protect yourself and exclude yourself and use religious liberty or whatever else to protect yourself from a worldview that must necessarily crush your worldview. I'm sorry I'm so exercised about this, but oh my friends, my friends, my friends. We've got to get a grip on this. We've got to make sure our pastors understand it. And if we don't, we won't be able to build anything. And God will continue to tear things down, to root up, to pluck up, to destroy, as he says to Jeremiah, until we repent. Our problem is not out there with the transgender community or the homosexual community. It is right here in the church because we have denied the authority and the relevance and the importance of the Word of God, and we've turned away from the Western legal tradition, 
that was built upon that and common law precepts, and we're reaping what we've sown. Oh, well, I don't know what I'm going to cover next week. I just know I had to cover this today. But I hope you'll share this podcast with others. And join me next week for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.